Hi, welcome to Quid Pros Quo. I'm Zach. And I'm Rin. And today we are talking about a super saucy episode of our world building series when we are talking about world building religions. Okay. Um, as we're talking about religions, we want to clarify up front that we are not commenting on the moral value of any of the world's major faith traditions, even though we are going to reference these different faith traditions and their conceptions of divinity, conceptions of morality, and how they differ. Um, so we just wanted to put that out there that we're not subtweeting anything. Yeah. I hope you know what subtweeting is. Zach did it, and I do explain that. I did not explain it well. I learned a new word today, guys. We learned a new word. Okay. So, part of my inspiration for this episode comes from a panel I was on at Life, the Universe, and Everything this past February, where it was about unlearning your cultural and religious biases. Mm -hmm. And as someone who grew up in a Christian tradition, I won't say which one, but you can probably figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) Context clues. (laughs) From the everything about us. (laughs) From, like, us dropping hints of where we were going. Yeah, anyways. Um, I am no longer in that faith tradition. And so I was on this panel as a proposed expert. (laughs) I'm putting air quotes around that because I don't think I'm an expert. I was just sharing my experience. But this one older gentleman in the audience raises his hand during the Q&A portion and says, why are all religious portrayals in fantasy and science fiction either of people who are religious cultish fanatics and why are the other half of them simpletons and fools? Mm -hmm. And so... And the way I answered that question was like, well, I think there's some historical justification for portraying religions as fanaticism, like like, like the Crusades, for example. That's like an easily available example on my hand. Um, and you can see how certain religions throughout history, this is again not subtweeting, I can't even think of a particular one right now, but like they have preyed upon the poor and weak and build their power plot off of that. Like, that's just a, a categorical cultish behavior. Like, yes, lots of exactly. cults do that. Like, cults do that. Not all religions are cults. Yeah. Um, and I explained that, like, there's historical justification for both, but then, ultimately, people who are faithful and who have respect for cultures of faith portray faithful religions in a positive way. Mm-hmm. So I've come up with Three F's. (laughs) I just wanted it to be alliterated, and now I'm thinking three F's. I'm like, none of them are the F word. (laughs) Sweet. (laughs) Ah! But the three F's are fanatic, faithful, and foolish, where fanatics are religious people who are culty. Faithful is a positive portrayal, and foolish are for simple is how simple-minded people are portrayed. Mm -hmm. So those are the three, like common portrayals I've seen in literature. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to say you can do whatever portrayal you want. Just know that you may get canceled or looked down upon if you don't include, if you only do negative or if you only do positive because there are people who have had really bad experiences with religion, like me, or there's people who have had really good experiences with religion and who will be offended by, like, bad portrayals. Yeah. So you should try and strike a balance and that's generally a safe way to go about it. Yeah. In so, my opinion. Yeah. One way that you can go about doing that is if you're going to include an example of a bad religious person in a story, it's a good idea to include a example of a good religious person in the story if you want to 
avoid the appearance of being anti-religion. If you're trying to be anti-religion, then of course, like, you do you. But if you're trying to walk that balance, then that's something that can be, that can help moderate it. So, example, Hunchback of Notre Dame, right? In the Disney cartoon, I'm not going to talk about the Victor Hugo novel because the Victor Hugo novel is weird, guys. If you've read it's also the, really, really long. It's really, really long. And you know why he wrote it? He wrote it because he wanted to preserve Gothic architecture. I didn't know that. I've heard this. I didn't know if it was true. Yeah. Cool. At least according to Wikipedia because that's all of the research that I've done on the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Nice. But in the Disney film, right, you have Frollo, right? Mm-hmm. Very evil religious man. But then you also have the one random priest in the cathedral who is a very good person. Now, he doesn't have much depth, but he's a good person, right? And you also, I mean, the film is also kind of interesting in the way that it kind of touches on themes of religion, but really doesn't do anything with them. Um, But that's an example of having uh, an example of a bad religious person and a good religious person. So, With that kind of, you know, that set dressing of talking about, you know, how you portray religion is likely to be perceived by readers as how you feel about religion generally, Um, let's talk about world building and religion. So first things first is to choose your divine beings and Rin writes and pray to them. Um, In the (laughs) West... In the West, our default mode of thinking about divine beings is that divine beings are gods, right? But other cultures have different varieties of divine beings. And, you know, the classic example is like, well, spirits. And yes, spirits are included in that, like in Shinto, where you have lots of different spirits and every, you know, everything in the world has a spirit. Um, But you also have ancient Judaism, which has divine beings like seraphim and cherubim, um, you know, there are other things that there are other categories of divine being besides God, goddess, spirit, whatever. Um, so there are lots of options. Um, one of the options is pantheons, and Rin likes pantheons. I love pantheons. So they're I going almost, to talk about it. I almost exclusively write pantheons. And as I'm like recording this, I'm like, hmm, is this a product of my upbringing in a monotheistic religion? Almost certainly. Um, but, like, you can do an infinite pantheon where you have, like, innumerable gods over different domains. And that's, like, more the Greek pantheon where you have, like, you know, the 12 main gods. And then you have, like, a bunch of minor gods under mm-hmm. those gods. Or you can do a finite pantheon. And these are not, like, actual terms. Like, maybe I'm coining them right now and it will, like, gain traction. Who knows? I don't think so. But whatever. And you can do, like, eight gods or whatever. Yeah. Um, so that's an example of polytheism. Monotheism is fairly rare when you're looking at, you know, the number of cultures and religious traditions. When you look at monotheistic religious traditions, there are not very many of them. Um, but monotheism is an, is an example of something that you could do with a religion that you're putting into your into your fantasy world. Um another option is um henotheism, not hedonism. Henotheism, and this is the belief in one supreme divine being while being agnostic about the existence of other other beings. So in the ancient world, particularly in the Roman Empire, this came up a lot where the Romans were fine to let people, you know, worship their local gods or whatever. And they were pretty ambivalent as far as like, oh, maybe they exist, maybe they don't. Doesn't matter. You just need to be willing to offer sacrifices to the emperor who is the, you know, who is a, you know, who is a god. Kind of thing. So that's an example of um, henotheism. 
but there are other varieties, right? You can think about conceptions of, um, you know, thinking about how, oh, your, your gods exist alongside my gods and maybe they can get along and we can get along. You know, it's a, it's a fancy way of saying live and let live. Coexist. Yeah. Woo, like the bumper sticker. There's also pantheism, um, which is this conception that everything is divine. Um, and it kind of relates to this idea of being at one with everything. And it kind of goes into monism as well. But monism is more of a philosophical conception of, of you know, spirituality. So we didn't include it here. But if you're interested, look it up. So once you have figured out what is going on with the divine beings inside of your religious tradition... What's the next question? What is the relationship between these divine beings and the people on your planet or in your world or whatever it is? Um, so in the antiquity, sometimes gods were considered to be antagonistic or ambivalent to the existence of humans. I find they were rarely truly benevolent. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you think of uh, like a god as a king, it leads to a different behavior than thinking of God as a parental figure. Yeah. Like, in Christian traditions, the, like, God is often referred to as, like, Heavenly Father. Mm-hmm. And that is a very different portrayal and, like, mindset around God mm-hmm. than thinking of God as, like... It's, like, Old old Testament Jesus versus New Testament Jesus, where Jehovah was, like, a conqueror mm-hmm. and Jesus is, like, a benevolent savior. Mm-hmm. Um... How do people interact with these divine beings? And this will come off of the previous question. Whereas, like, are they trying to please them, satiate them, emulate them? It's just totally dependent on the relationship. So what kind of rituals do people engage in when they're trying to interact with the divine beings, do you think? Yeah, so when we're talking about rituals, we're talking about formal acts of religious significance, right? So this can be something like doing offerings or sacrifices. So this is kind of, you know, for the generation that grew up on... Um, Percy Jackson, right? We have this conception of like, oh, we're going to slaughter animals and we're going to, you know, throw them on these pyres and they're going to, you know, feed the gods or whatever. Um, So offerings and sacrifices are some classic examples. You could also have prayers, ceremonies, pilgrimages, tithes. Like, there are lots of things that you can do with, as far as rituals are concerned. Mm -hmm. And when you're world building a ritual, rituals are steeped in symbolic significance, right? So if you're looking at any like religious ceremony or ritual that people are undergoing, consider what symbols are at play there and what is going on symbolically there because it will give it the it will give it realism and it will help to ground it inside of like, oh yeah, this is obviously something that they thought about and actually makes sense rather than just copy pasting saying it this is the fantasy catholic church. Yes. Which happens sometimes. It happens a lot more frequently than than people think. Yeah, absolutely. You can also think about whether some places or times are holier than others, like are there temples or particular pieces of land. I think of like in modern day and for a long time before modern day like Muslims travel to Mecca, which is yep. like their holy yep, yep. land, and they do a pilgrimage. I think their word for it might be Hajj. Yeah, the Hajj. Yeah. So that's another way like that people are interacting with divine beings. Um, and if you have like a holier time, then that's like the origin of the word holiday. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I, I don't know what else more to say on that. It's yeah. Like, so it's a day. It's a day that is holy, right? So yes, holy exactly. day, holiday. 
And it sets it apart from, there's this conception inside of the sociology of religion about sacred time versus secular time, Mm -hmm. or just regular time. Sacred time is time that is lifted up out of the, you know, lifted up out of everyday quotidian stuff, right? Yeah. Um, And even if you're not religious, you probably have noticed this idea of sacred time versus secular time, especially in the West around Christmas, right? Mm -hmm. Even if you are not a practicing Christian, even if you are an atheist, there is still a sense that something is different because everything inside of the stores tells you that something is different, right? Um, But you can also, it doesn't just have to be a particular day of the year, right? It can also be particular years. Um, An example of that is in Judaism, you have, in ancient Judaism, you have this idea of a jubilee, right? Um, where you have this year in which you have debts that are forgiven, you're going to let the, the land rest, um, and there are all of these things that are going to happen during that year, and the year itself is holy, not just a day in the year. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of things that you can do with holier-than-otherwise times, times that are holier than others. Yes. You can also think about if religion is formal and centralized or informal and decentralized. So, in the West, we often think of churches, but other cultures have, like, rich religious traditions outside of churches. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of, like, I don't know if you have concrete examples off the top of your head. Yeah, the religions. idea that I think about is uh, um, Shinto, right? Oh, yeah. There's a really rich religious tradition around Shinto, but, you know, people who practice Shinto don't go to church. They don't belong yeah. to a congregation. Mm-hmm. It's a belief that, you know... People share beliefs around and within the within the framework of Shinto. I'm not an expert, but it's not you know you don't you're not going to yes. you're not going to church on a regular basis. Even though you do have shrines and you do have you do have temples. Yeah. But it, it's it's different than the way that you know inside of the Christian West. I'm not saying that the West is Christian, but the subset of the West that is Christian mm-hmm. in the Christian West. That's kind of how we think about you know, about religion is that you have priests and you have churches that are organizations and you go to church. Yeah, and I would also posit things can be, like, informal and somewhat centralized. Like, because mm-hmm. I'm no longer Christian. I identify, I, pra- I practice Buddhism now. Um, and we have, like, our Sangha, which is, like, community, and it's one of the three jewels of Buddhism is mm-hmm. the Sangha, the community. Um, and it is... Centralized was not the right word for what we have. But it's, like, organized. But it's, like, organized, and we have, like, a leadership. Mm-hmm. But also it's not nearly as strict as, like, the Christian traditions I grew up in where it's, like, oh, you're going... And this is partly a familial thing, but, like, you go to church every Sunday, like, unless mm-hmm. you're sick. And, like, now I just go to Sangha, like, when I feel like it and when I think I need it. Mm-hmm. And everyone there is happy to see me, whether I've been there every week for the past month or if I've missed every week in the past month. So... Again, it's a spectrum. Mm-hmm. You do not have to have binaries in your world. Next question is, how is this worship mediated? Are there priests? And then, like, this is Rand personally talking. Like, this is, a, like, my opinion and my preference for world-building religion. Is I mostly don't inc- include priests because in my personal belief is you don't need a mediator between you and your God. But, like, you do you. And also your personal beliefs do not have to resonate in your work. Yeah. Because in Dawnless... I have the main character is a priest. Yep. And so you, 
I think one thing I want listeners to take away from this episode is you do not have to like use your book as missionary work. Mm-hmm. And that may be a very Christian word for me to use. Well, it's not proselytizing. It doesn't have yeah. to be proselytizing. Yeah. Um, because the first book I ever wrote was totally a Christian allegory, and I did not mean for it to be a Christian <laughs> allegory at all. But then, like, one of my Christian friends pointed out, like, it was, like, what we grew up in our tradition, and I was like, okay, and now I cannot go back to that book. I just can't. It's too hard for me. But anyways, a few rapid-fire questions. We've been going for almost 20 minutes at this point, and we are about to lose our recording studio. Um, what are the values of your God and religion? How widespread is your religion? Are they trying to convert other people to their religion, or is it okay to be a non-believer? That's, like, one major, like, dividing line, not mm-hmm. dividing line, but, like, differentiating line in religion mm-hmm. these days, like, my Buddhist practice is in no way trying to convert people to Buddhism. Right. And it's like, you can be a Buddhist and be a Christian. Like, yeah. it's neat. This And this is not me trying to get you all to convert to Buddhism. I'm afraid it sounds like that, and it's not. I'm just speaking from my own experience. Um, but something to think about with the with proselytizing is how is it done? Is it something yes. that is centralized, um, or is it something that is more, you know, decentralized? If I can give an example, a lot of, if you're looking at missionary work inside of some traditions, you have people who are just missionaries and that's just what they do. Whereas if you look at a religious tradition like the Jehovah's Witnesses, just regular old people do. Regular old people engage in proselytizing. Like if you see a Jehovah's Witness on the side of the road, that's just a person who lives there, right? It's not somebody who's specifically like a missionary and that's what they do. Um, And then thinking about what the process of conversion is like. How does one become a part of the become a part of that religion another thing to think about is what expectations do believers have of non-believers do they have no expectations or do they have a certain minimum requirement of you know of holiness that they need to that they need to abide by or certain morals that apply to non-believers and certain morals that apply to believers yeah you can also ask the really fun question of are these gods actually like real um not just socially but like do they exist in your do they exist right um, what and do, plane are they on? Yeah. And do they interfere with the lives of their subjects? Um, and if they have um, direct or indirect influence inside of inside of people's lives. Um, and this, again, is a spectrum. I think about, I think one of the examples of a, of a world that has a god that is like part of the world is if you read Brandon Sanderson's The Alloy of Law, no spoilers. Um, but when you look at Priory of the Orange Tree, you have a character who has a very deep religious conviction and you have somebody else who's an outsider who does not believe in that religious tradition. But the things that this outsider does confirm the truth of the religious tradition to the person who believes. And so it's kind of ambiguous, right? Um, so there are lots of things that you can do with religion. This has been a really long episode. If you have thoughts, please share them with us. We'd love to hear. This has been Quid Pros Quo. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Quid Pros Quo is hosted by DC Winters and CK Jensen. If you like this episode, be sure to leave us a rating. And if you'd like to contact us, you can email us at quidprosquo at gmail.com. For more episodes, check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts.